Welcome to Think Change. I'm Sara Pantuliano. Well, over the past four months, Israel's grand invasion of Gaza in response to the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October has sparked a global backlash, particularly over the clear disregard for international humanitarian law. We've all witnessed a stark divide between Western political leaders and the rest of the world. We've seen several UN General Assembly and Security Council votes that have isolated the US, the UK and a handful of other allies from the majority of global opinion. And so last November, South Africa approached the International Court of Justice in The Hague to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and to consider whether Israel is committing genocide. Well, as all of you know, um, on Friday, 26th of January, the court made an interim ruling. It ordered six provisional measures, and that included for Israel to take all measures to prevent acts of genocide. But it stopped short of calling for an immediate ceasefire. Since then, we've also seen the defunding of Gaza's biggest aid agency, UNRWA. Um, we've seen 16 donor countries suspending funding, an act that Many have seen a tantamount to collective punishment, given you know, the critical reliance of the people besieged in Gaza on Urwa's humanitarian assistance. So today we want to reflect on the significance of the ruling and really help understand what comes next. Um, and to do so, I'm joined by Kate McIntosh, the executive director of UCLA Law Promise Institute in Europe. Welcome, Kate. Um, Raz Segal. Associate Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University. Welcome, Raz. Ronak Gopaldas, Director of Signal Risk. Great to have you with us, Ronak. And last but not least, our very own Social Callan, the Director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. Kate, you're in The Hague. I'll start with you. I'm sure you were watching closely as the International Court of Justice handed down its ruling as to whether Israel, as argued by South Africa, is committing genocide in Gaza. What's your take on what the court said? Thanks, Sarah, and uh, thanks for the invitation. It's uh, great to be here. So perhaps I can start by just laying out what the court was asked to say and what the parameters were very briefly. So as you know, South Africa asked the court to indicate what are called provisional measures which is something that they can do once a case is lodged with them in order to preserve the rights of other party. Or in other words, in order to stop something irreparable, some irreparable harm happening before the court has time to actually rule on the merits of the case. So that was what was before it. They were asked to step in on an urgent basis and make a provisional ruling without actually hearing all the evidence or proceeding to a final determination. Right. So they were not being asked to decide whether or not genocide was being committed. And of course, they couldn't. It's a much longer procedure and there will be extensive pleadings and evidence submitted and so on before they can do that. Um, so in order to make this short um, interim ruling, these provisional measures, the court basically had to determine two things. First of all, whether it had jurisdiction at all to take this case. And then it had to look at what the what South Africa was saying the threat was and whether the measures it was asking for were appropriate. So the jurisdiction part, actually, um, there's a technical part to that in terms of whether all the boxes have been ticked, whether the parties have signed up to the relevant conventions and so on. But there's also a subject matter part where they look at whether the acts that are complained of look like they fall within the genocide convention. And the court actually went pretty fast to saying, yes, they do. So they said, we have jurisdiction over this case. and yeah, potentially this is relevant to the Genocide Convention. 
They then went on to the second and more substantial part of the argument, which was to look at whether there was an actual risk of genocide being committed uh, and whether the measures that were being sought were relevant to preventing that risk. So they frame it in slightly different language. They look at preserving the rights of the parties, but essentially what they're looking at is whether there was a plausible risk of genocide. And that is where we saw the court then noting some of the evidence which South Africa had presented and reciting it in its judgment. So the court talked about the large number of deaths and injuries. They talked about massive destruction of homes, forcible displacement of the vast majority of the population, extensive damage to civilian infrastructure. And crucially, they also talked about the dehumanizing statements that had been made by members of the Israeli authorities, such as the statements by Defence Minister Gallant about human animals releasing all restraints and so on. And based on that, the court found that there was a plausible risk to the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide. So they essentially said, it's plausible. You know, it's plausible that the current situation is going to uh, put the Palestinians in Gaza at risk of genocide. Therefore, it is appropriate for us to order some provisional measures. What provisional measures do we need to order? They looked at what was requested by South Africa and they said, well, there's definitely a link between most of, at least some of, I think was their language, the measures requested and preserving these rights. Therefore, we can go ahead and we can go ahead and make the order and order some of the provisional measures. So as you said, um, Sarah, the, you know, the headline issue, of course, was that they did not order a ceasefire. What they did order was pretty much everything that they could order within the bounds of the Genocide Convention, right? They ordered the Israeli state to take all measures to prevent genocide, to ensure that the military did not commit genocide, to prevent and punish incitement to genocide. And the, interestingly, even the Israeli judge joined on that order to enable provision of basic services and humanitarian assistance. Again, Israeli judge joined on that order and then to prevent destruction of evidence of genocide and then to come back and report within a month. So my take on it, to get to your original question, I mean, I think it was a, I think it was a positive decision. In my reading, in order to order a ceasefire, the court would have had to have determined that any military activity was necessarily genocidal. You know, they would have had to determine that military activity in itself led inevitably to a risk of genocide. And I, I think that would have been a stretch. Um, it's, it clearly is possible for there to be military activity, which does not uh, risk, you know, which is not aimed at destruction of a human group in whole or in part. So they would have had to have reached the conclusion that in this situation, that was not possible. So I think it would have been a stretch. I think the court went about as far as it could go. Thanks. Um, Kate, Raz, do you agree with uh, with Kate? What's, what are your reflections on the ruling? Is that, you know, really all that the court could do? Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me uh, and happy to join this discussion. Uh, I actually think that the court, in effect, did actually rule for a ceasefire because uh, the court demanded that uh, uh, the Israeli army uh, not perpetrate um, acts of genocide and prevent acts of genocide. And it listed, of course, the killing members of a group, causing serious bodily harm, not creating conditions calculated to bring about the physical destruction of the group. Um, uh, and uh, it also ordered the entry and distribution 
of aid in the scale that's needed, which is a massive scale that's needed because we know that we're facing now famine actually on the ground. And we know that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are already ill with infectious disease. Uh, so there, there's a need for massive uh, aid. There is no way of ensuring that uh, the Israeli army does not perpetrate genocide. And there is no way of uh, ensuring that there is an entry and distribution of aid uh, and the scale that's needed without uh, a ceasefire. Uh, so in effect, uh, the the court, uh, in my reading, uh, did rule for a ceasefire. But I want to add one more uh, thing here that I think is very important. I mean, Israel has enjoyed decades of absolute immunity, uh, impunity in the international uh, legal system. Uh, and this impunity very briefly is based, it's, it's very foundational actually in the international legal system because it really emerged with the international legal system after World War II, that is with genocide as a key innovation of the system after World War, genocide and crimes against humanity, but genocide is what's considered, quote, the crime of crime. And it was based on the idea that the Holocaust, no one used that word, of course, at the time, but that the Holocaust, the Nazi assault on Jews was unique. Um, and therefore, uh, um, when Israel was uh, uh, created in the same year, of course, as the Genocide Convention in 1948, because the Nazi assault on Jews was unique, Israel as the state of the survivors of the Nazi assault also actually became unique in the international legal system. And therefore, impunity in that sense was kind of baked into the international legal system from its reemergence after World War II. The ICJ ruling here is so very significant because this is the end of the era of Israel's impunity in the international legal system, whatever happens, whatever happens next, actually, right? So this is already very, very significant. Of course, there's some other implications to discuss, but uh, I just wanted to, to note this one. I think it's crucial moving forward. Thanks. That's a really important point, you know, that the ICJ ruling really brought an end to this uniqueness, as you call it. Okay, do you agree? Uh, does this case draw any comparison to any other ICJ ruling, or is this really so unprecedented? Well, I think what Raz is saying is that it was unprecedented that it was made, this order was made against Israel. I mean, it comes in at a very interesting time for the court, actually, where we're seeing more and more issues of global significance being taken to the court for some kind of resolution. So just within the Genocide Convention, starting with, I mean, back in the 90s, the first case was during the Yugoslav Wars with Bosnia against Serbia, and then there was a, a frankly less significant case, Croatia against Serbia. But then recently we've seen, of course, Gambia versus Myanmar, uh, Ukraine and Russia, the other case, which has taken an interesting spin on the Genocide Convention. And then this case, as well as seeing Armenia, Ukraine in another context, bringing human rights claims against aggressor states, Azerbaijan and Israel. Um, and I think, interestingly, these proceedings are not confined to disputes between two states, right? So we've seen third party states like South Africa bringing the case against Israel, Gambia bringing the case against Myanmar. In the case of Ukraine against Russia, 32 other states intervening on the side of Ukraine against Russia. In the Myanmar case, a number of third party states intervening on the side of Gambia. And here we've also had, of course, in the South Africa Israel case, we've had. Um, 
Germany announcing that it's going to intervene on the side of Israel and Bangladesh announcing that it's going to intervene on the side of South Africa. So we're seeing the International Court of Justice um, being looked to, to play, I would say, a role that's uh, much closer to the role that was originally envisaged for it, which was in the new dawn of, um, you know, the post-genocide, post-Holocaust, post-World War II era that Russ referred, referred to, the idea that, uh, you know, aggression would be outlawed and that states would peacefully resolve their disputes at the court. Um, I mean, I'm not suggesting that the court is not being used for political advantage by various parties, but it's also interesting that it is being shifted towards the centre of a lot of very significant geopolitical issues at the moment. Sorsha, you are the director of our humanitarian policy group here to the I. Will the ICJ ruling have any effect on the humanitarian situation in Gaza? Oh, it's the billion dollar question. I mean, clearly the court ruling is a a legal victory, it's a moral victory. But if you look at what's occurred since the ruling, it's really hard to argue that it's having any effect on civilian lives in Gaza. I mean, since the ruling, we know that a thousand Palestinians have lost their, their lives as a result of the ceaseless and indiscriminate bombing. Uh, the UN is now suggesting that Five percent of Palestinians in Gaza have been killed, maimed or missing. The Israeli forces are moving to Rafah, which is the only safe zone in the Strip where hundreds of thousands of people have been sheltering. Um, and international aid organizations are now estimating that one quarter of the population in Gaza faces immediate risk of starvation. And this was before there was the cutting off of funding to, or feeling the effects of the cutting off of funding to what is Gaza's largest humanitarian actor, UNRWA, um, which will, you know, absolutely, it threatens a complete collapse of, of what is a very limited humanitarian operation in Gaza. And this flies directly in the face of the court's ruling um, and its uh, judgment that there had to be, um, you know, uh, allowance of humanitarian relief into Gaza. Um, so on the one hand, it's, you know, this is a very important uh, case and it's an important precedent, as we heard, um, in terms of Israel's accountability. But we also see very clearly the limits of the law um, and the fact that there's no enforcement mechanism. Um, and if Israel doesn't apply with the, the judgment, which it clearly isn't, um, it's for the Security Council to enforce uh, the decision. And we know that this is going to be extremely unlikely, given that the US has used its veto repeatedly in relation to this current campaign. And it's actually used it 45 times since 1972 to protect Israel. Raz, has the ICG ruling had any impact in Israel? How, how has that been received? Uh, I think that uh, uh, we know that majority of Israelis uh, really follow primarily Israeli uh, media, uh, which keeps them, uh, you know, uh, by their own choice, uh, quite uh, isolated, uh, both from the uh, levels, the unprecedented levels of killing and destruction uh, in Gaza, which is quite astounding because it's nearby, right? Um, but also from the international uh, discourse, um that 
uh, is now more and more Israel finds itself a pariah state, right? Isolated, um, also because, uh, as we just heard, it's really not following uh, uh, the orders of the court. And, you know, it's important to mention that in two weeks' time, uh, the report that Israel has to submit to the court uh, on what it did in response to its orders is due. Right. Um, so that will be interesting to see uh, uh, what that will uh, be like. But I think that most Israelis um, are um, not all of them, but most of them are very much uh, um, living in a different uh, kind of uh, of world, a world that's really based actually on this insistence of Israel impunity that's based on a weaponization of the Holocaust. So they see themselves, I mean, they see them, the, the Hamas that attack on 7th of October in the context of the Holocaust. They, we know that part of the dehumanization of Palestinians in Gaza has been the portrayal as Nazis. Um, and Israel's Israelis see themselves as the victims here, which is, we have to say, a very it's very recognizable historically from genocides and mass atrocities that perpetrators, of course, see themselves as the people under attack, right? And their genocidal assault, right, as simply a matter of self-defense. So that's, I think, uh, still a very strong position, very widespread position in Israeli politics and society today. Thanks, Raz. Ronak, let me come to you. Obviously, the key issue here is that Arguing its case against Israel at the ICJ, South Africa has challenged the you know so-called Western-led order. You know, it's really stood out for taking um, a stance against you know this uh, um, Western um, position in support of uh, what Israel is been doing in in Gaza. What do you think are the implications of you know emerging powers like South Africa pushing for? peace and justice, you know, globally um, and clearly challenging the status quo. Thanks. Uh, I mean, I think I debate that notion that South Africa is is explicitly challenging uh, the Western-led order. I think I would frame it slightly differently and say that South Africa legally as a contracting party to the Genocide Convention is within its rights to approach the ICJ if it believes the convention has been violated. And every state who's a contracting party has the right to do that. And I think that's why we have these institutional mechanisms to ensure accountability and that each country is held to a consistent standard. And I think from that perspective, if you look at South Africa's case at the ICJ, um, you know, it's it's it should be applauded for, for looking to um, test the legitimacy and the consistency of the international justice system. Um, and that's what makes the Western reaction, um, which kind of has kind of um, discredited the South African position, somewhat curious, because these are the same countries that have established, set up and stewarded the institutions that have kind of underpinned the global multilateral system since the end of the, the World War. Um, so I think that's the first point. I think the second point to note is that the global South benefits disproportionately from the checks and balances which multilateral, which the multilateral rules-based order offers. It's designed to temper the abuses of powerful nations. And in that regard, there's a vested interest in the global south in making sure that these instruments work effectively and that multilateralism is, is strengthened. But at the moment, we have a trust deficit in these institutions. There are these perceptions of bias, perceptions that they're not fit for purpose, and that's quite problematic. And I think in large part, that's because Western capitals have divested a lot of their political capital 
from these these institutions. And now I think with the fact that the global liberal order is no longer the only show in town, the global south has really found their voice and it's it's pushing uh, and and using these mechanisms to push for issues that it deems important. And I think that's that's a good thing because it can only enhance the legitimacy of these institutions. So despite the fact that they have flaws and they are imperfect, imperfect, um, I think it's important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think the South African case um, could actually have the effect of strengthening the international justice system by showing that the, the, the instruments of international justice serve all nations, not just the powerful ones. Thanks, Ronak. I mean, clearly what we have seen um, in sort of the run-up to the ruling has, has been a huge divergence in the narrative landscape, you know, around the um, attack on, on Gaza, the, the, the response, you know, to um, what happened on the 7th of October by Israel. We've done a lot of work and, and sort of thinking at ODI on this, you know, sort of what we call the politics of, of narrative. Do you think this interim ruling will lead to more polarization or can help, you know, narrow the, the global gap in narratives and perspectives? So that's an interesting question. And I think the context is, is quite important here because this dichotomy that we've been seeing between the global south and the global north has been happening for a while. And I think it's reflective of the general breakdown and consensus in the international order. Um, I think countries in the global south are angry and they're disillusioned. They feel they're victims of problems that have been created in other regions and that they just can't catch a break. You know, if you look at COVID, a lot of countries in Africa and the, the developing world were subject to travel bans. They didn't get vaccines. The Ukraine war, you know, started in Europe, but African countries and emerging market current uh, countries became uh, disproportionately affected by food and fuel price increases. Financially, a strong dollar and higher interest rates in the West locked them out of capital markets. They feel the same about climate change, where they're being asked to remedy a problem that they didn't create. And then the same thing with the, the framing of the Ukraine war which was very binary. So there's this perception that has been building that there's the West and the rest. And I think this is at the heart of the grievances that the global South has in, in, in general, is that the Western gaze on global issues um, is problematic because the issues that the West deems important are deemed global issues, but everything else is a regional issue. And I think there's also this push towards um, you know, the fact that the institutions that were created a long time ago are not reflective of contemporary global dynamics. And we've seen this with India challenging, um, you know, the, the West's position on the Ukraine war, continuing to buy Russian arms and um, and 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 oil uh, and exercising strategic autonomy. We've seen the BRICS expansion. Uh, we've seen the push for reform of the UN Security Council. And I think in this regard, South Africa's case uh, has had a catalytic effect uh, and will embolden countries on the global south to continue to find their voice. Um, already we've seen, you know, Indonesia has brought a separate case against Israel to the ICJ. Uh, Nicaragua is taking Germany, Canada, the UK and Netherlands uh, to the ICJ as well. Chile and Mexico have, have referred Israel to the ICC for war crimes. Um, so I think this 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 polarization is 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 quite evident and it's not just rooted in this issue. It's in a, in a range of issues. Um, so, you know, from South Africa's perspective, I think it plays well because it, it kind of restores some of the moral legitimacy um, that had been lost with a lot of its clumsy positioning and policy inconsistencies over the year and establish itself, itself as a leading voice of the global South. Uh, and I think also just looking at the Western responses, uh, it shows that when push comes to shove, principle is largely discarded for, for power politics. 
Thanks, Rona. Kid, I want to ask you, I mean, this polarization that Rona is talking about is obviously very apparent. How is the court going to navigate this? You know, it, it obviously will need to gather evidence in order to deliberate over the next months, possibly years. How is it going to navigate this global polarization? Yeah, well, I think we were all watching with bated breath before the order came down with exactly that question in mind, right? Um I mean, in my view, I think the court has retained its integrity with this ruling. Uh, and I think that that is crucial if it's to perform the role that was envisaged for it, you know, to any meaningful extent. Um, so I think all of us who support a rules-based international order breathed a huge sigh of relief, actually, when that uh, provisional measures order was handed down. I mean, how is it going to navigate? I think... Uh, You know, the court can't control how its judgments are received and represented in the media. Uh, You know, that's not its role to do so. I think with its, you know, it's its truly global composition and its very methodical approach, I think it is an authoritative and ultimately helpful voice also in this situation. And I think just as a personal reflection, watching that evidence, the evidence of the death, destruction and suffering in Gaza that we've all been following on social media and seen on news channels, watching that being presented in the sober and formal setting of the world's highest court, I think was powerful. And watching the president of the court recite that in the judgment was even more so. So I think the court inevitably becomes part of the narrative. All it can do is is deliver its judgment, but I think it did this in a thoughtful and even-handed way. And um, I think that that is, it is a helpful, a helpful voice ultimately uh, in that regard. Thanks. We're almost at time. I just want to ask all of you, um, where, what do you think we're going to see next um, in terms of um, the continued, you know, um, escalation of the crisis uh, and the impact I mean, as you talked about the report that Israel needs to submit in um, in a couple of weeks um, what can we expect and what is going to follow do you want to start with that well I think that what we can expect we're already seeing what we can expect and you know I, I do think that this is a watershed moment because Israel is so central in the really in the western identity after World War II and post Holocaust um so you know we're already this ruling obviously triggers third state responsibility because the ruling of the court responsibility to uh prevent uh genocide right according to the convention uh because the ruling of the court clearly signals that there is at the very least a risk of genocide right it really means that israel is plausibly perpetrating genocide already but there is certainly a risk so there is then that triggers the responsibility to prevent what does that mean it also means that uh, states uh, cannot be complicit right with the likely perpetration uh, of genocide so this has an immense effect on of course arms uh, deals with uh, Israel we're already seeing um uh uh various uh, uh moves to limit uh, uh the shipment of arms uh, to Israel. We've seen a few days ago the statement uh, by 800 serving officials uh, in Britain and the U.S. who refer specifically to the ICJ ruling, uh, who um, mention specifically the issue of complicity, right, who are concerned that their government's policy, that is the U.S. government and the British uh, government's policy, 
right, uh, uh, is now, may now be actually within the realm of complicity with the state perpetrating genocide. Uh, this has effects on, uh, uh, for example, when, you know, I'm an academic, right, on universities uh, around the world who now, when we're already seeing this, there's a statement by uh, Dutch academics uh, just uh, yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, who are talking about now the fact that cutting ties officially with Israel universities because of their decades of involvement with occupation, with siege, with oppression, uh, um, uh, is now not just a matter of debate anymore, but it's actually a matter of law because of the ICJ uh, ruling. So I think that, as I said, the pressure on Israel is going to mount. Israel is finding itself as a pariah state in a in an unprecedented uh, situation of uh, uh, of isolation. I think this is very crucial in the struggle, uh, uh, as we heard, you know, for finally, you know, to really protect uh, millions of marginalized people around the world, people who face discrimination, and state violence, because the system has failed them as well. So this has also, I think, implications well beyond uh, the issue of Gaza. And of course, we also need to remember that there is uh, millions of Pal other millions of Palestinians under Israeli control and rule in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, and of course, Israeli Palestinians. All of them have faced all of them have faced an you know, intensifying attack in various ways since the seventh of October. So this is significant also in in relation to thinking about you know stopping and de-escalating the attack against them. Thanks, Ronak. What's your take? So I, I'll speak about this from a foreign policy perspective, and I think we're going to continue to see this kind of uh, divergence between the global north and global south. I think on the one hand, we'll see um, continued efforts from countries in the global south to try and make uh, the, the current multilateral institutions more representative, more inclusive, more fair, uh, and ensure that they have greater legitimacy. But if that approach is not working, I think in parallel, we're going to see uh, kind of a shifting center of the world. I think we were seeing the rise of uh, emerging powers and a more assertive global South, which is uh, no longer allowing itself to be dictated to by the West. So I think that fragmentation in the international rules-based order will 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 continue. It might have the effect of, of leading to to more um, inclusive and representative uh, institutions, but equally um, something is being built in parallel. And I think that trend will continue. Thanks, Osha. I think we're seeing a ratcheting up of political pressure and legal pressure and to a certain degree, diplomatic pressure on, on Israel um, and the Western allies that have been supporting its campaign of, of indiscriminate violence. But I think if you look at what's playing across our screens on social media in real time in terms of the civilian life in Gaza today, um, I think we're not seeing any step change in the conduct of hostilities or the experience of uh, a population that is is really on the brink of, of catastrophe. Um, so on what degree this will tip over into something where, you know, um, the campaign will Will, will be altered, a ceasefire will actually happen. It's, it's not clear. We know that, you know, even within the countries that have been most supportive of Israel, say in the UK, that the there is, you know, popular support for a ceasefire. 71% um, of the population in the UK think that there should 
be a ceasefire, but that's not translating into a shift, a, a, you know, a real shift in terms of the support. Whether the fact that there is, you know, uh, elections across many of these countries um, and Western leaders um, will face some re repercussions for their support to Israel is yet to be seen. But whether this kind of ratcheting up in pressure can come quickly enough for Palestinian lives, I think the answer to that has already um, been seen. Thanks, Kate. Yeah, I don't have much to add, um, but I think I share um, Sorsha's pessimism and you know feel quite torn about talking about positive steps towards rules-based international order, which I think this judgment was part of, while also acknowledging that it's having very little effect on what's happening on the ground, which is what this is all about. So yeah, I'm deeply pessimistic about what's happening in Gaza, trying to cling on to some optimism about <laughs> little signs of hope in the global system. Yeah, it's definitely very hard, you know, to find sign of optimism. But um, as you've all said, it is a watershed moment for a number of reasons, you know, clearly because it's the first time that um, Israel sort of gets sort of called up, you know, to its responsibilities um, as a state within the frame of the Genocide Convention, because we see a country like South Africa uh, stepping up as, you know, a party to the convention, just generally to challenge what it sees as a perception of bias or institutions that should function better and don't. Um, and so, again, that's a, a promising sign of things to come. And because we see, you know, the public that actually is reacting, although, you know, politicians don't follow in so many Western countries, but it is a year of elections in so many countries and it'd be interesting to to watch, you know, what impact that will have. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Raz, Ronak, Sorsha and Kate. Um, this was an incredibly informative um, conversation. Um, um, thanks to our listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, as always, please do like, subscribe and rate it. And I hope you will join us again next time. Thank you. <laughs>